Hello, this is Catherine Carr, producer of Talking Politics. Since we finished our series of talks by David on the history of ideas, we've received lots of questions from listeners wanting to know more or wanting to tell David how he might be wrong. Today, I'm going to put some of those questions to him and he's going to try and answer them. Talking Politics, History of Ideas is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading literary magazine. After each episode, continue your exploration of the history of ideas in their unrivaled archive of essays and reviews, films and podcasts, and find out more about how a subscription to the LRB can be an indispensable home learning and student resource by heading over to their website, lrb.me forward slash ideas. That's lrb.me forward slash ideas. Before we get going, you will hear at the end that we are in early planning stages for another series. So do keep subscribed to History of Ideas wherever you get your podcasts. So first up, a big one. You start with the idea of the modern state. But what is the difference in your terms between a state and a government? That is the big question. I'm going to give two kinds of answers. The first is a cop-out, which is there is a really good answer to that question in a lecture by Quentin Skinner. And we have it in our um, Guide to Extra Material on our website. So the lecture is called What is the State? And Quentin Skinner, who is a great historian of ideas, gives a brilliant answer to that question. So my answer is not going to be nearly as useful as his. But I'll give it a go because it did say in my terms. I would put it like this. The simplest way to say it is that governments are always made up of identifiable people, individuals. So the British government, we could name them. I can't actually. I'd have to look it up. I should know. can't even name the cabinet, all of them. And the government isn't just the cabinet. It's the ministers of state, ministers of the crown. But it's a group of people, less than 100, I think, just. And governments can be identified with names and they come and go. So a government will change after an election under our system. One lot leaves, the next lot arrives, and you've got, suddenly you've got a new set of names. It was Johnson and then it's whoever. Maybe it'll be Starmer. It's not just the prime minister. It's that group. So you can ask, who is the government? And if I looked on Wikipedia, it would be very boring, but I could tell you the answer. It would be a list. You can't really ask, who is the state? The question is, what is the state? Because the state is not an identifiable group of people. Even if you listed every single person who lived in the United Kingdom, that wouldn't be an answer to the question, what is the state? For a start, it wouldn't make any sense. If you listed those people, by the time you'd written it down, never mind, read it all out, it would have changed. Every second it changes. People are born, people die, people arrive, people leave. The state only makes sense as a kind of abstraction. It's the thing to which we belong. You, me, everyone, the government too. Boris Johnson is a member of the state. You and I are members of the state. The state is the institutions. The state contains all of it. It's a kind of membership organization, but it's not us and it's not them. It's us and them and all of it. And that's why I start with Hobbes, because he's not the first person to put it quite in these terms, but he close to is. And he absolutely does characterize the relationship between government and state. 
as the government being real people, real flesh and blood human beings speaking for this thing, which is a kind of abstraction. And then there's a question whether the abstraction even exists. Is it a fiction? Did we imagine it? Because we can't touch it. We can't feel it. We can't see it. We can see the things that represent it, but there's always something behind it. That's the deep mystery. It's the deep mystery at the heart of Hobbes, this kind of magical thing, which the essence of the power is this intangible creature that's been brought into being artificially. It's not just mysterious, it's kind of frightening. And Hobbes captures the fear too, the Leviathan, the monster. This thing, it's inhuman. It's it's not flesh and blood. And whatever you think of Boris Johnson, he's a recognizable human being and you could interact with him just about as a human being, but you can't interact with the state in that way. So it has this impersonal quality. But there are reasons why that distinction has to hold. And again, if you look at Quentin Skinner's lecture, he gives some brilliant examples. I'll just do one, which is debt. So states, not governments, but states can borrow astonishing amounts of money. They can take on unbelievable levels of debt. The American state, again, I don't know what the number is, but it's so big, that number, it just makes your head spin. And it's the state that owes the money. It's not the government, because you know, if Boris Johnson and his ministers owed what the British state owes, then we would go bust within one second because no one believes those people can pay it back, however corrupt they are, however much money they've got stashed away, and they don't, by the way. Governments can't borrow and service debts, only states can, because states, among other things, exist in the long run. Governments come and go, governments change, states remain. The government changes, the state doesn't. It's just represented by different people. And that arrangement, it turns out, weirdly, almost miraculously, because it's not completely clear it makes sense that this abstraction can pay back money, that arrangement allows states to borrow for the very, very long term. The British government, sorry, I've, got, I've made the mistake. The British state has debts that run across many, many generations. Going back to Second World War, First World War, Napoleonic Wars, this huge period of time that can be covered because states are this not eternal thing, but amazingly durable thing. And there is a case for saying that the ability of states specifically to borrow money is what has funded the modern world. Not exclusively, but that capacity for long-run investment and sometimes squandering of money is one of the engines of modernity. And it would not be possible if it was not possible to distinguish between states and governments. But it's hard, as I showed, because I just muddled them up a minute ago. A couple on Hobbes. It's not all going to be about Hobbes, we promise. Are Hobbes's ideas about organisation of society applicable to ideas about corporate organisation? And to what extent do these ideas move in parallel? So I'm not going to say this every time, but it is true every time. That is a really good question. And there's a very explicit answer in Hobbes. Hobbes says, is the organisation of a state like the organisation of a corporation? And his answer is absolutely yes. So he says that the model for the state, which is that some group of people represent this kind of abstraction, and that because they are legitimated in that role, they are, as it were, entitled to play that role. That's what gives them their power. 
He says that is the model for pretty much all forms of human organization, including what he calls explicitly corporations. He doesn't really mean what we mean by corporations. He's not sort of thinking of contemporary businesses, though not a million miles from that. But one of the examples he gives is the corporation of the City of London. So he's thinking of what we might now call local government, but also corporations like the new companies that were being set up to colonize America. The Virginia Company, Hobbes was not a shareholder himself, but he went along to represent the posh family that he worked for at meetings of the Virginia Company. And he says in Leviathan, all of these different forms of human organization have this same model. Even the family, human families, can be understood to be many states. They could be ruled by the father, probably would be the father, could be the mother, could be a democracy. You could have a family democracy. All the members of the family get a vote. But the family is this kind of abstraction and the members of the family are representing it. It's a slightly weird theory, but it explains why Hobbes was so adamant that the state has to be at the top. It has to be sovereign. It has to be the thing that decides how all the other ones work, because otherwise you'll get chaos and confusion. If your corporation, your family, and in the 17th century, your family could have a private army, your family could be the thing that you want to protect you. Your corporation, your family, your church, your state, if all of them are potentially rival sources of authority, you get chaos. So you need the single super authority, which is the state, to regulate all the other ones. That's what he thought. He didn't think that the regulation had to be hands-on. So you could have very loose regulation. You could have a state that is pretty relaxed about corporations, has decided that actually it's safe. Let these businesses kind of run themselves however they want to run themselves. and You just intervene if they go really badly wrong. Or you could have very tightly controlled corporate organization where the state sets up all sorts of really strict rules. You can only do it this way. You have to ask our permission. If you want to set up a corporation, you have to come to the state and get the state to charter that corporation. We now live in societies which are at the looser end of the scale. It's not true of all modern societies. China, the contemporary Chinese state, is pretty hands-on entirely, but in particular when it comes to big corporate power, making sure that it's very tightly connected to the state through the party. So lots of different ways it could go. I think there are a couple of other things to say about contemporary corporations, one of which is that our states are now pretty democratic, so they're not really that much like the state described by Hobbes in Leviathan, where his ideal model of it was more monarchical. But Quite a lot of contemporary corporations are pretty Hobbesian in the sense that the authority, the power in those corporations is very, very narrowly concentrated, often on one individual. So Jeff Bezos at Amazon is in some ways closer to a Hobbesian sovereign because of his ability single-handedly in some contexts to represent the whole corporation and the power that gives him, personal power in the name of the abstraction. That's closer in some ways to a Leviathan setup than the modern American state where Trump, for all his power, does not have the same kind of power over this thing called America that Bezos has over this thing called Amazon. Though Bezos only has that power over Amazon on the sufferance of the American state. So the American state, I still think, is at the top of the hierarchy, but it's getting closer And then the last thing to say, the thing that would cause Hobbes the most anxiety about corporate organization is its multinational, international character. So he he thought that states, and these become in the modern world nation states, have to decide how corporations work. 
But if you have corporations that can move quite easily from state to state, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, it's much harder for the state to control them. And I think 21st century corporate life with its extraordinary multinational quality and the biggest corporations, which do not really belong in a single jurisdiction. I mean, technically they do, but in practice, it's quite hard to pin them down. That would give Hobbes real anxiety. The second Hobbes one, you call Hobbes a sceptic and you use Descartes as the model of a sceptic. But as this listener writes, I can hear my old philosophy lecturer shouting in my head, Descartes was not a sceptic. So was he. Yeah, I understand that. Um, And I think I probably didn't make it clear enough that scepticism here means a method rather than a kind of quality of character. Like calling someone a sceptic in these terms doesn't mean that that's who they are. That the sceptic is a person who is always doubting everything and is going to kind of go to their grave always saying, yeah, but how do you know? Scepticism as a method is you doubt until you reach the thing that you think you can't doubt. And when you've reached that thing, then you go all in on trying to build up knowledge, knowledge that somehow is beyond doubt. So the reason that philosophy lecturer was saying Descartes not a sceptic is when Descartes reaches his base of knowledge, which is complicated, but it includes the cogito ergo sum, the idea that to be a doubter is to know something for sure, which is there exists that capacity in the world. You can get from there to a proof of the existence of God, which is the opposite of scepticism. Descartes gets quite quickly from doubt to the ontological proof of the existence of God. And then once you have God, Descartes thinks, then you can anchor pretty much everything. And then you get this big, rich panoply of knowledge. So he's not a skeptic in the sense that he wasn't doubting. He was he was doing the opposite of that once he'd got his ground on which to stand. And Hobbes is similar. So Hobbes doesn't go all the way up to the proof of the existence of God. And he doesn't go all the way down to the most radical skepticism so that you're just fumbling around in consciousness for something that you can rely on. But he goes down to characteristics of human nature that he thinks are, relatively speaking, beyond doubt, because whoever you are, wherever you come from, whatever your life experience, you would recognize it. And he builds up to this thing which is beneath God, but is, as he says, the mortal God of the political world, which is the state. So skepticism doesn't make the skeptic a permanent doubter. It's closer to the scientific method the modern scientific method, which is you you really do kind of test things to destruction, but if they're not destroyed, then you have something that you actually think you can build a whole world around. But quite quickly with Hobbes and Descartes, you know, when they build their world, it gets quite mystical. God or even the Leviathan, which as I kept saying, I've already said it today, is there's something really weird and mysterious about it. It's this weird abstraction. It is a kind of mortal God. It can die, but while it exists, it's almost intangible. And of course, that is not doesn't sound to anyone like scepticism. So it's a it's a method. It's not a person. Now, a question that a lot of people ask about what's missing: Why no John Locke? So one answer to that question is because we were going to do twelve of these, and we had to make some choices. So there are lots of things that are missing. Um, I'll talk. About bit more later on about some of the other things maybe that were missing. But the Locke question is more specific than that. I mean, Locke very much, though not quite by name, but responded directly to Hobbes. And there is a way that the story could be told where the next person to talk about after Hobbes is Locke, whereas I went from Hobbes to Mary Wollstonecraft. So I skipped 
couple of generations at least. My reason for steering clear of Locke is I totally understand that for many people, Locke is more familiar and more comfortable for the kinds of people that we've become politically. It's a it's a political philosophy with recognizable features that we really value, ideas that become ideas about rights, about freedoms of expression and toleration, uh, about separation of powers and anxieties about the ways in which the power of the state can be misused in a Hobbesian framework. Hobbes is much starker. Hobbes is much more alienating. That's why I started with Hobbes, because I think it's sometimes good to be confronted with something which is hard to recognize. And yet when you see echoes of it in our politics, it actually gives you a slightly different perspective. So you know, a simple way of saying it, I think Hobbes is more bracing than Locke for us. But there's something else which connects back actually to my last answer about skepticism. So historians of political thought argue a lot about John Locke, and not everyone agrees, but there's a kind of consensus that Locke's political philosophy does rest on some Christian foundations. You need to buy into a certain conception of theology in order for it to really be anchored in something. I mean, it's a bit like you, you get to God and then and then you can get back down to something that is reliable. Uh, that's not true of Hobbes. So Hobbes, you don't have to have a view about God to recognize at least some of the logic of Hobbes's argument. And for me, that has actually a stronger connection with themes in modern political thought. And some historians of political thought have said that actually the ways in which Locke has been used over the years have really obscured and misrepresented the essence of his thought because people have grown increasingly uncomfortable with the Christian foundations. And so they've tried to kind of siphon off the friendlier bits for a secular sensibility and the argument goes you can't siphon them off if you siphon them off you just take away their their ground their ground for um, making sense and though Hobbes is a much more uncomfortable thinker that is not true of Hobbes you can take him in pretty contemporary modern terms and it still makes sense you don't have to agree with it you can be repulsed by it but it doesn't rely on something that we might have left behind. We can't obviously cover all the authors today, but we did get quite a few questions about Weber, and here are two. One is a quote from Weber's lecture, and the question is, doesn't this perfectly describe Trump and, to an extent, Johnson? The quote is this. He therefore is constantly in danger of becoming an actor, as well as taking lightly the responsibility for the outcome of his actions, and of being concerned merely with the impression he makes. His lack of objectivity tempts him to strive for the glamorous semblance of power rather than for actual power. His irresponsibility, however, suggests that he enjoys power merely for power's sake, without a substantive purpose. Although, or rather just because, power is the unavoidable means and striving for power is one of the driving forces of all politics, there is no more harmful distortion of political force than the parvenu-like braggart with power. So did Weber have a warning about the current breed of irresponsible populists? Uh, I think yes, and I think parvenu-like braggart, that, you know, <laughs> that's Trump, kind of. And, and it, as I was listening to you read that, it's hard not to think of Johnson as well, what I find, if you if you take Weber's lecture, particularly the last third of it, where it gets quite sort of sermon-like, 
you can almost find all contemporary politicians in there. So yes, there are definitely moments where that sort of the particular possible irresponsibilities of people like Trump, the power for its own sake, the performance, the performance becomes the substance of the whole thing, the endless seeking after attention to reinforce the power without any sense of what the power is for, unless it's for things that you don't dare admit because they're so harmful. There is that in there. That is definitely a version of Weberian irresponsibility. But you can find, I mean, I, I can see Putin in some of Weber's accounts, the kind of, um, you know, the former KGB agent who seems to have learned his emotions from a KGB manual. So when he cries, it's like on page 713, this is how you cry when something bad has happened. You can see it in Bolsonaro in Brazil. I mean, Bolsonaro, the cl- he's a classic Weberian failed soldier politician. And Weber has a real warning. Don't let soldiers, particularly failed soldiers, or maybe, I don't know, actually, maybe successful soldiers are worse. I don't know. But so, the military for Weber is not good training for political leadership. You can see it in Salvini in Italy. Salvini is a very Weberian kind of braggart politician. But you also see it in the, I mean, I'm using this phrase very loosely, in the good guys. I mean, the people who, who seem like they're not the, maybe the parvenu populists. I mean, Keir Starmer is in Weber's lecture. Keir Starmer is a classic lawyer politician. And though Weber says lawyers and journalists, that's probably the best training ground, there are vices associated with that way into politics. And there are dangers that the lawyer can be too loyally and after all, at the moment, in Britain, we've got a lawyer and we've got a journalist. Johnson is the journalist, Starmer is the lawyer. So in Weber's terms, that's kind of good, much better that than a soldier and a priest. But you know, the journalist can be you know, really superficial, because journalism is superficial. And the lawyer can be really kind of procedural. And politics cannot be either just superficial or procedural. Biden, Biden is in there. Biden is too in love with his own ability to emote. So he hasn't learned it from a KGB manual. When he cries, it's because he's remembering all of the tragedy in his life, the terrible things that have happened to his family. And Weber is aware that that's really tempting to become your political personality, and it's dangerous because you can be seduced by your own persona. Angela Merkel is in there, the politician who is too comfortable waiting for other people to make the mistakes. That's Merkel is that kind of politician. So the thing I would say about Weber's lecture, what gives it its transcendent greatness, is that we're all in it. Um, All the politicians, and indeed, in some ways, anyone who thinks about politics at all, that's why it's a bit like a sermon. It's not saying these are the bad guys and other people are fine. It's saying everyone, everyone in politics, whoever they are, is subject to temptations and it's incredibly hard not sometimes to succumb in fact it's impossible so even the person that i talk about as the model weberian politician abraham lincoln even he is there not just as the way it should be done but there are bits of lincoln's personality which are the vices of politics lincoln was a monster in many ways i mean his statue may be coming down in america right now because of the monstrous side of him he was a killer he was he presided over a killing machine he was a racist lincoln lincoln was the most human and most monstrous and greatest of all modern politicians and weber captures the fact that we are all all of us not just trump and johnson all of us potentially seduced 
by, this is literally how Weber puts it, by the devil in politics. And anyone who thinks that they're above that, that's the person you should worry about. The other Faber question which popped up is this. If, as Faber argued, the state is defined by successfully claiming the monopoly of the legitimate use of violence, what happens when it brazenly and systematically resorts to its illegitimate use? That is another very good question and quite hard to answer. Um, I think there's a sort of trite, almost tautological answer, which is, well, if you successfully claim the monopoly of legitimate violence, if you then do violence, it's legitimate because you've monopolized it by successfully claiming it. There's a kind of sort of, you you can't brazenly abuse the legitimacy so long as the claim is successful. But that doesn't really work because we all know states do abuse it. Even supposedly kind of good liberal states do terrible things. And, And there is definitely quite a lot of out of sight, out of mind aspects to state violence. So good states, quote unquote, are pretty conscious that they mustn't threaten the claim, the success of the claim, to be the ones who decide about legitimate violence and who monopolize it. So the things that are a bit dodgy, they keep out of sight. All states have secret services. The history of the CIA, the history of the British secret services, particularly in places like Northern Ireland, a light shone on that really does challenge the claim because it does not look legitimate, does not look remotely legitimate. It looks overtly brazen and the violence seems to corrupt the state. And that's one reason why actually in liberal democratic states, you do have to keep challenging the claim. The claim might be successful, but there's nothing permanent about that. And I would say it's one of the reasons why, and I think Weber would accept this, that journalism... So journalism can be a good training for politics, but journalism is really valuable in its own right. People who want to expose, to reveal what the state is really up to. It matters in times of war and so on. Even that might have to be suppressed. But you want a state where if there is an attempt to hide away things that might threaten the successful claim, there are people who are determined to bring them to the surface to test whether the, the claim can survive it. And the state won't fall, but the government might have to be got rid of, the people who allowed it to happen. You know, the arguments about Guantanamo in the United States are a good example of this. And it's also the case, I think, that in states where journalism is suppressed in order so that no one can challenge the fundamental legitimacy of the state's use of violence, that those can carry on for a long time, those states. Many of them have. I mean, the North Korean state is still going. But the brazen abuse of violence is endemic in those states. And that's why there is a strong case to be made for liberal freedoms of the press. The one other thing I'd say, which is the flaw in many ways with Weber's account, is that the claim is internal. So it's like you you derive your ability as a state to legitimately deploy violence from the fact that your citizens accept that. They legitimate it. There was a kind of acquiescence and maybe even an overt consent. But that doesn't say anything about the violence that the state directs against people who are not its citizens, to outsiders, which is often where the worst abuses of violence happen, including by liberal democratic states that also have empires, for instance. I mean, this is a theme of the talk I gave on Fanon um, and colonialism. Many of the worst things 
that liberal democratic states do are done beyond their borders. And the claim, the successful claim can still be intact because it's, you know, they're careful, these states, not to do it to their own citizens. But they can do terrible things elsewhere. And I don't think Weber has a good account of how to reconcile these things. And I think he, he allows too much leeway, as Hobbes does in a way too. I mean, the Hobbesian version of this would be, well, that's why everyone needs the protection of the state. So like if another state is coming for you, you need your state to protect you. But we know that there are many millions, billions possibly of people who have not had the protection of the state, either because their country has been taken over by a foreign state or because they live in a relatively stateless environment, still true in many parts of the world where you're basically on your own. And then you really are vulnerable to the brazen abuse of state power. And I don't think Weber or Hobbes have a good answer for that. You do need a different tradition, a human rights tradition, a, a much more contemporary tradition. It doesn't have to be human rights. There are all sorts of variants on that theme. But there is a big hole in Weber's account. Now a question from a listener on Gandhi. They said, in your talk on Gandhi, I was expecting you to address why passive resistance to Nazism and Stalinism was hopeless, which opens up the apparent necessity for the successful, unconstrained oppressors first to succeed in rendering the oppressed subhuman, not just to themselves and their followers, but especially to the watchers. This is, indeed, the deepest and most lasting stain of slavery in the US. What do you say to that? So what I say to that is it immediately made me think of a famous essay about Gandhi that was written by George Orwell. So I mentioned George Orwell in the talk on Fanon, but I didn't talk about Orwell in relation to Gandhi. But Orwell lived two years, I think, longer than Gandhi. And in that gap, so a year after Gandhi was assassinated and a year before Orwell himself died, he wrote an essay about Gandhi and his legacy. And he grapples with exactly this question. So it's a really interesting essay. We'll make sure that the link is available. It's quite short. Orwell's really torn about Gandhi. In some respects, he's, he finds him a really distasteful figure. Um, he thinks he's kind of absurd, and some of the things he believes believed were absurd. On the other hand, he recognizes he was an extraordinarily successful political force, and he achieved, relatively speaking, an enormous amount, much more than many more politically astute, supposedly, 20th century figures did. It's an interesting essay because it grapples with this, but one of the ways in which Orwell finds Gandhi sort of grotesque is his almost honesty about the idea that this approach to politics, the sort of passive resistance approach to politics, becomes absurd when confronted with Hitler. Because Orwell cites Gandhi being asked the question about the Holocaust. Gandhi has to address the question, can you really even stick with this thought that you you accept the violence that's being directed at you in order to show people what your oppressors are capable of when your oppressors are trying to wipe you out. And Gandhi said, and Orwell finds this abhorrent, as well as he admires the consistency and he is appalled by the implication Gandhi said, well, since the Jews were going to be killed by Hitler anyway, they should have committed collective suicide. That's what Gandhi said. Which is, a, you know, it is the literally the reduction to absurdity of Gandhi's form of politics. 
You can't say that. I mean, you can say it, but it's not going to persuade anyone that the Jews of Europe should have committed collective suicide in order to demonstrate to the world what was being done to them. And that's because, as the question implies, it just doesn't work, that form of politics in the absence of an audience who have both the attention and the power to restrain the oppressors and have some kind of moral compass to understand what is being shown to them. And Gandhi's politics is extremely effective in that context, Britain and the Raj, civil rights in the United States, where there is a a constituency of people who have real power, maybe voters in the American North, maybe members of British public opinion, and also indeed some members of the British government, who recognize that they're being shown that they are now responsible for something that is intolerable to their sense of morality. But when you have systems that have treated human beings as subhuman, of course, it does not work if the audience, as the question implies, have bought into that. I think it's also true, particularly this applies, I think, to that last point about the lasting moral stain of slavery in the United States. So what the Gandhian form of politics uses is the dignity of the person being oppressed to convey to the audience that is being spoken to the message that we are not subhuman, we are human. Look, we have the capacity for human dignity. So you attack us and we respond in a dignified way. We accept the punishment. This is what connects Gandhi and Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela. Extraordinary dignity. And the dignity used in that way is politically very, very effective. And what you can win through that kind of dignified passive resistance is your political goal. So the ending of Jim Crow or the British out of India or ultimately the end of apartheid. But what I don't think you necessarily win is your dignity. So the harder thing is for the tool that you're using, which is your dignity, to become the thing that you are recognized for because, in a sense, you're using dignity for some other end. And I think it is true, and I think it is central to the politics of the United States in 2020 that civil disobedience leading to civil rights is one thing. Civil disobedience leading to recognition of true human dignity is something else. And it's not clear that that was or indeed has been yet fully achieved. And you could say that that is the bigger struggle. So the struggle goes on and Gandhi does not get you there. It requires something else. It maybe requires what is happening now. We did get quite a few questions about the analogy you drew in your talk on McKinnon, where you compared the battle of the sexes to a sports match between the under-18s and the under-12s. And here are a couple. In the episode on McKinnon, as far as I understand it, the key argument is women and men are not equal, 12 years old versus 18 year old kids. I wonder if this inequality is thought to be temporary and can be overcome or if it's structural. And from another listener, that was the one bit that didn't work for me. On most parameters, the differences within the sexes are bigger than the differences between them. So 18s versus 17s might have been a better analogy, I think. Yeah, so um, when I did that talk, I mean, these talks are not making excuses Well, I am. Some of it is sort of being thought through as I'm speaking. And as I was doing that analogy, I did wonder if it whether it worked. And I was a bit nervous that it didn't. And I totally take these points that there's something 
And I was troubled by it because it made it sound too, it was sort of overdetermined, like under 18s against under 12s. If that's men versus women, it seems to create not just sort of institutional inequality, but fundamental sort of biological inequality. And there is a bit of that in McKinnon. You know, there's no question that men oppress women for reasons of biology and sex, as well as gender and construction. But I totally see how that analogy can seem to overstate it. So I just want to say a few things. I've been thinking about this. And actually, I think you can, and I would encourage people who don't like that analogy to think about ways you could come up with better ones. So the point I was trying to make is that if you have a structurally unbalanced contest, and then you, you introduce a neutral umpire or neutral set of rules, the neutrality will just replicate the underlying unfairness. But even with under 18s and under 12s, it doesn't have to be that the under 18s win. So say that you had those two teams and the contest was limbo dancing and you had a very neutral set of rules and a neutral umpire, the under 12s would win because they can go lower. You know, if that's if that's the game, going lower. So it really does depend on what the game is. That's one thing to say. I think McKinnon is also very much trying to say a whole range of things that have sort of, you can play them out in sporting analogies where if you superimpose supposed neutrality on basically a skewed playing field, neutrality just becomes a veil or a mask for the underlying injustice. So another way you could do it, so if you don't like under 12s and under 18s, you could just have a regular match between two equally balanced teams, but one of whom has been allowed to train for six months and the other group have not. You know, there could be a prior injustice or one group have really great facilities and great coaches and the other group doesn't. You know, One group just has the money. You know, one team is Manchester City and the other team is Rochdale. These are men of roughly equal size, but there is a structural imbalance. And then the, the neutral rules, the, the referee who very carefully is trying to not favour one side or the other, is favouring one side, favouring the side that came into the match with all the advantages. And the advantages that men have over women in modern societies do include resources and prior forms of power uh, and money, among other things. And many supposedly neutral rules, by failing to recognize the underlying injustice, replicate it. It's also true, and again, I think this is part of McKinnon's point, that if you have a neutral set of rules that are being interpreted by people who overwhelmingly come from one side rather than the other, that is, she was writing 30 years ago, so it was much more true then than it is now, but it's still true now. Many more men than women are arbitrating in the courts of the actual law courts, in politics, in the court of public opinion. Many more men than women are judges and ministers or government officials or newspaper editors. And 30 years ago, overwhelmingly, I mean, terrifyingly, it's like a sporting contest in which the, all of the referees always come from Manchester. And even if the referees say, but we're neutral, we're like, you know, we've had years of training to kind of train us out of all of our, we know that's not true. Cricket used to be that the umpires came from the home country because it was just too expensive to fly in umpires. And there was deep structural injustice in that. And I can't remember when, but they abolished it and introduced neutral umpires who neutrality there meant weren't just from one place that happened to be one of the two teams that was playing. So all of this is going on in McKinnon's arguments. There are lots of ways in which the injustice is more structural than it is sort of fundamental to 
human bodies, but human bodies do play a part definitely in McKinnon's argument. I mean, I think the core point is the point about the ways in which the language of neutrality can actually make injustice worse because it obscures injustice. But what analogy you want to use, I'm definitely not wedded to that one. It doesn't even have to be sport. In fact, I'm sure for a lot of people making a sporting analogy makes it absurd. But you know, there are lots of different ways I think you can illustrate that point. And I, and I think it's right that my one was probably too one-dimensional. Uh, so all of these and more would be my answer. Finally, a couple of general questions, and this did pop up quite a few times. Uh, Who do you think our current political leaders should be reading? Um, So I took that question partly to be a sort of, was I trying to say that it would be good if they read Leviathan? No, I think it would be terrible if they read Leviathan. Don't want them to read Leviathan. I can't see how that would do anyone any good. Or any of these. I mean, if if I had to pick one of the 12 that I talked about, they should read Mary Wollstonecraft simply because it's the most human. I think I said it at the time. Mary Wollstonecraft, in some ways, is closer to Jane Austen than she is to Thomas Hobbes. And actually, I think they should be reading Jane Austen. I mean, so I I don't think that um, politicians should read works of political theory, partly because I just don't think it would make any difference, but that will somehow tell them, like Weber, I think there isn't a manual. Even Weber's great lecture is not a guide to how to do politics. It's a guide to how hard it is to tell anyone how to do politics, because in the end, actually, you're on your own. So given that, I'd rather that politicians read the kind of things that we all read for pleasure or to take us out of ourselves. <laughs> Anything. And it's true, you know, there's a sort of cliche that politicians used to have the time. Harold Macmillan did used to read Jane Austen. They used to take months off just to go on sort of reading breaks. It's not going to happen now. But I would hate to think that I'm the kind of academic who thinks that politicians should read the sort of academic things that I'm interested in. These talks are partly about how to understand what doing politics in a modern state might be like for people like us, including me, who actually don't know because we've never done it. So if it's partly about us trying to understand them, I mean, at the basic level, I would say it would be great if they read books that help them understand us. And they're going to understand us better by reading novels than they are by reading Thomas Hobbes. And the last question is this. I was wondering if there's another writer whose work you find as fundamental, who you compare ideas back to as frequently as Hobbes. I have been thinking about, um, I enjoy doing the series and I'm glad that people have responded to them and have these great questions. And we've been thinking about what a second series would be like, because there is a whole host of stuff. It isn't just Locke that's missing. Well, I don't think I'm going to do Locke in the second series either. But I was thinking about another way of telling the story of modern political ideas, because the the one I did, I mean, it's very loosely connected, and there's not some single narrative I'm trying to tell. But there are connecting themes that have their roots in this idea that what Hobbes allows us is to see that there is a kind of way of making sense of the weird doubleness of modern politics, that maybe this is the reality, this is its essential feature, that it, it is always a story about both freedom and constraint about extraordinary power and also liberation for citizens that comfort and fear go together. There's a kind of paradox. And Hobbes is the great philosopher, I think, for allowing us to understand why that paradox is essential. But there's a very different way. I mean, there are many different ways of doing political thought, but an alternative tradition is the one which is not what Hobbes is trying to do, which is to make sense of what looks puzzling on the surface. 
but that says you have to strip away the surface to see what's underneath because it's puzzling because it's concealing something. And I think people often misunderstand Hobbes and they think he's that kind of philosopher. So people often think that Hobbes was saying that if you took away the state, underneath the state is the seething state of nature. You know? The state is this kind of bandage that we've put on our true selves and really we're the, the nasty, brutish and short people. And I just don't think that that's right for the reasons I think I talked about. He doesn't think that's who we are. He thinks we are modern people. That's who we are. And the state of nature is just a way to illustrate to us who we are. It's not the thing that's under the surface. But there are great books, which are the stripping away of the veil books. So one of them, which I would, I think, talk about in the next series, whenever we do that, is Nietzsche's Genealogy of Morality. But another, a book I haven't reread for a while, but I made a huge impact on me as a student and read it a few times then, but not since. And it's also, I'm aware there are lots of people who would be better to talk about these things than me. So our colleague on Talking Politics, Chris Brook, um, knows much more about this writer and this piece of writing than I do. But it's Rousseau, and it's it's not The Social Contract, his most famous political book today, but it's what's called The Second Discourse or A Discourse on Inequality. He wrote two discourses. The first one won him this great prize. The second one didn't win him the prize because it was too disturbing, but it's the great book. The great book he wrote, I think, about politics. And in it, he tries to show that modern civilized life, including its political manifestations, is a kind of veil that has been overlaid and he strips it back. So like Nietzsche, it's a kind of genealogy. It takes you back through the stages. How did we get here? Hobbes isn't doing that. Hobbes isn't doing how did we get here. Rousseau is how did we get to this thing that doesn't really make sense? And it doesn't make sense because each layer obscures the truth and there's an underlying truth about who we are as humans that has been lost through modern politics. So it's, though Rousseau was very influenced by Hobbes and shared some assumptions with Hobbes as a way of doing political thought, it's really radically different. And it's mesmerizing. It has the same effect that Hobbes's Leviathan does, which is when you read it, it's like being taken out of yourself into someone else's head and you just you could potentially just look at everything differently. And it has the best final line of anything I can think of. So I'm just going to read the final line of Rousseau's second discourse. So he ends by saying, It is manifestly contrary to the law of nature, however defined, that a child should govern an old man, that an imbecile should lead a wise man, and that a handful of people should gorge themselves with superfluities, while the hungry multitude goes in want of necessities. So Hobbes is the philosopher who tries to show us that the thing that seems really strange, modern politics, actually makes sense. And Rousseau is trying to show us that the thing that we think makes sense, we live in a world where a few people rule many, a few have more than they need, and many do not even have the basics. We've persuaded ourselves that this makes sense. What we have to see is that it's really, really strange. Thank you to everybody who tweeted and emailed questions or sent them through the podcast website, talkingpoliticspodcast.com. If there are people in your life that you think would really enjoy the first series of History of Ideas and who may not have listened to it, the best way to reach them 
unless you just tell them in person, is by rating and reviewing on iTunes because that moves us up the chart and makes us more prominent and enables more people to discover us. So if you didn't mind doing that and you haven't already, we'd be very grateful. As David said at the end, we are thinking about a second series of History of Ideas talk, so do stay subscribed to make sure that that pops up in your phone or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you have any burning ideas about who you think we might like to talk about, we can't promise that we'll do all of them, of course, but we'd love to hear your thoughts. Then do tweet us at tppodcast underscore on Twitter. Thank you very much for listening as we've been talking politics. But it's hard, as I showed, because I just muddled them up a minute ago. <laughs> okay. How was that? Uh, <laughs> that, was was that a good answer? Curious mud. <laughs> yeah, it's a good answer. That's quite a long answer. It's a long answer. I'll try and do, um, be shorter next time. <laughs> Otherwise, this will go on forever. <laughs> I think some people would like that. <laughs>